This is Understand South Carolina, a news podcast from the Post and Courier. I'm Emily Williams. And I'm Matt Rasnick. Today, we're talking about a new project from the Post and Courier exposing abuses of power across our state that are costing taxpayers, especially in small towns. The project is titled Uncovered. Corruption in South Carolina is flourishing in part because the federal government has backed away from prosecuting public officials. The state's ethics laws are also filled with loopholes. And at the same time, community newspapers and other watchdogs have vanished or are withering. Today, we're going to talk with reporters Tony Bartlemy and Avery Wilkes about what they've discovered so far and what is next in this ongoing project. My name is Tony Bartlemy, and I'm a projects reporter for the Post and Courier. So let's just start by explaining what sparked the idea for this project. How did the idea come up and how long has this been in the works? The origin story for Uncovered actually goes back about three years when one day I was sitting at my computer when I got a a tip. Somebody had uh, told me that there was this big cache of documents uh, sitting there online. And, And what had happened was a nonprofit called Paper had used the state's Freedom of Information Act to get a bunch of spending records for Kershaw and Richland counties, specifically its prosecutor there. And then they just put it online. And it was sitting there for weeks and weeks. And when somebody told me about this, this pile of documents, and I started looking into it, and I couldn't believe what I was seeing. This one prosecutor was taking trips to the Galapagos Islands, uh, all on the taxpayer's dime. And he would go to uh, see a Twins game at a conference in, in Minneapolis. But I remember seeing this Uber ride for $179. And so I grew up in Minneapolis. And, and I, you know, what's Minneapolis known for? You know, it's known for the Vikings and the Twins and Prince. So he took this $179 Uber ride, according to the receipt that we got, and drove to Prince's house and back. Again, all on the taxpayer's time. So we saw all this questionable spending. We wrote stories about it. The guy went to federal prison because of that. And so we started thinking, what else is out there? And we, we knew this prosecutor had gotten his start in uh, sheriff's department. Joey Craney and I started blanketing the state with FOIA requests, Freedom of Information Act requests to sheriffs. And we came across this sheriff in Chester County, who was doing the same thing, flying off to conferences first class. He would get big uh, room upgrades because he he would later tell us that he was tall and he didn't want his feet to dangle off the mattress. So again, questionable spending. We wrote stories about him. He is awaiting trial on charges. And so that was the sort of the second link of the chain. And then as a result of all these investigations, we've got another tip. Um, this one had to do with gas authorities, which I'd never heard of. And we just started thinking about it all uh, in a lot deeper level, the why and, you know, why does corruption flourish? And that really led to, after three years, to Uncovered. So you wrote that corruption in South Carolina is flourishing, and that's for a few reasons. Can you break those down for us? So the main takeaways are we discovered what I think is a national story, and and that's that federal prosecutors who have long come into the, into South Carolina and and done major corruption investigations have they've essentially cut in half the amount of prosecutions they've been doing uh, over the last four years. And this decline had begun, you know, a little bit during the Bush and Obama administrations, but then it fell off a cliff during Trump. And instead of doing these very complicated, these are tough investigations that take time and resources. Instead of doing that, they were doing 
tons of immigration cases. So it was the shift in political priorities that was creating less scrutiny. So that's one of the, the big takeaways. The second big takeaway was that our state doesn't have the infrastructure to investigate, properly investigate corruption cases. The SLED, we found the state law enforcement division, you would think that they would have a white collar crime unit or they would have a specially trained auditor to go after government embezzlers. They don't have a single, what they call forensic auditor or a, or a dedicated white collar crime unit. And then you have this expansion of news deserts, these, these places around, around the country and in South Carolina where newspapers have these little community newspapers, which are the eyes and ears of the citizens are declining and, and closing. So that lack of scrutiny is really the, in the end, what's causing corruption to flourish here. One of the things that you refer to in the reporting are islands of governance. So first, can you just explain what that term means? And then why are they kind of ripe for these types of abuses of power? Yeah, uh, Emily, that, that's a good question. So uh, I think it was Glenn Smith, our project editor, who came up with that term years ago for another corruption story. So it, it basically, an island of governance is an agency that exists on its own in, in a kind of an isolated way where it all but regulates itself. Now, for example, uh, we took a deep look at the, the five public natural gas authorities in the state. And these gas authorities are essentially utilities that supply natural gas to mainly rural residents. That's why they were set up to su support poor rural residents. But they are, so they're governed by a board of directors who are appointed by the governor and they set the rates and they set the salaries for the managers. They are, exist on their own without any real direct responsibility to, the, to voters. So you have, you know, so sheriffs and solicitors kind of are, are in that kind of island of governance category and special purpose districts, these water and sewer and fire departments that you know, they regulate themselves. There were a lot of examples of the boards of these authorities spending thousands of dollars while attending these industry conferences and other events. Can you describe some of what you found and do these boards have to report their spending? Yeah. So these boards, these natural gas authorities, they're like Santee Cooper or, you know, they are independent agencies regulating themselves. And I took a look at all of their, uh, their, their credit card statements. That was the first thing I looked at. So what are they, what are they charging to the agency? You know, what are, where, what kind of hotels are they staying at? What kind of trips are they taking? And, and it became very apparent that they were living really well. And they were flying off to these conferences, and they would spend sixty, seventy thousand dollars per agency on fancy hope four hundred, you know, four hundred dollar a night rooms, and and there was one agency that took glass blowing lessons, and and they flew down zip lines, and they, you know, they would go to wine tastings and these really nice restaurants, and. And it was kind of funny because I would be going through their spending records, looking at, you know, where they were going. And then I would Google, you know, the hotels and the restaurants. And I, I really felt like I was learning how to live it up in, in another city. They really don't have to report their spending to any independent regulators. They, the only way to find out what they're spending is to submit a Freedom Information Act request to the agency itself. It's not listed or posted anywhere else. Nobody else keeps track of it. They do have to respond to a FOIA request because they are public agencies. 
and that can take time and money. They were, you know, it took months to get all these documents. And then you have to go through these documents, you know, thousands and thousands of pages. We went through 12,000 pages so far on this project. And then you have to figure out what, what they're doing. And it's, 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 so it's very, very difficult for the public to get a handle on what they're doing. Yeah, this is one of those examples that I thought was really interesting, A, because of what was found, but also just because these are entities that I think most people aren't thinking about or maybe don't know that they exist. So take us through one of these trips that you looked into that these natural gas authorities took. So again, these are public entities. Can you just break down one of those for us in more detail? Yeah, let's let's go on a trip with one of these these authorities, you know, to let's say Portland, Oregon. So you had board members and their wives and husbands fly to Portland, Oregon and stay at a nice hotel there and one day one of the gas authorities uh, took a nice tour into the wine country and took lots of pictures and and then the next day they they went to a beautiful waterfall. And again, this was a full day tour. Had a nice dinner at a cozy lodge overlooking a beautiful waterfall, and then they tooled around the city in on Segway scooters and ate at really really expensive restaurants. And I guess there were some meetings. I mean, the agenda says there were there were meetings, but they, you know, one board member went to the movies, and you know, it's very clear that these are social events more than anything else. The three gas authorities that went to Portland ended up spending. $160,000 on that one conference. And that's all I could find. It might have been more. And that's enough to give every one of their employees $900 salary boosts or lower rates. One of the things I wanted to ask about too, so you mentioned these are primarily social, but there are meetings. Since these are public entities, is that also an issue in terms of transparency? If these authority boards are meeting and there isn't public notice, I would think, if they're out in Portland, Oregon, having a meeting. A public agency, when it has its has its meetings, is supposed to notify the public they are having those meetings. And then they're supposed to keep minutes. This is, this is state law. And whenever there's a, a, a quorum, a, a large enough number of leaders together, they have to notify the public. They never did. They, ne- they just never did that. And they claim that they don't have to. They're just wrong. They're, they're violating the law. Let's go back to what you said about those federal entities, the FBI, the Justice Department, and how they're investigating corruption less. What kind of role have those entities played in South Carolina in the past in terms of being able to investigate these kinds of cases? So the FBI and the Department of Justice have long been, especially in the South, the most important anti-corruption fighters that we have. They would come in. They're not beholden to the local power structure. They come in and they often expose you know, widespread abuse. So we've seen cases in Dillon County where it, it seemed like most of the entire local government was caught up in a vote, vote buying scandal in the 1980s. And then in the early 1990s, the Operation Lost Trust was a federal investigation into the state legislature, which exposed how 
you know, widespread it, it was for legislators to sell their votes. There was one lawmaker who said he would he would tell he told federal agents that he he would sell his vote for a, a couple of suits. And another guy said he would play you know sell his vote for some golf clubs. It was widespread, and that that investigation triggered the state's ethics reform a- effort. And it really was the the major sort of a major a watershed moment in the state's history to kind of take a look at the most egregious examples of corruption. Uh, it didn't go far enough, but that's another story. So they've in, they've also investigated sheriffs here in, in the state. But yeah, they're, they've cut way, way back. These investigations started to decline during the Bush and Obama administration and then kind of fell off a cliff during the Trump administration. Why is that? Why are they investigating corruption less? For several reasons. One is that th- these investigations are really time consuming. So if you are a U.S. attorney and you're looking at a corruption effort that will take two or three years, you're looking at that and then you're looking at your resources and then you know, you know, you're looking at your case numbers and, and also you're looking at maybe going up against some powerful people who might affect your own career. So you have that disincentive to, to prosecute corruption cases. That, that's sort of the main, is that it's the complexity. And then, then also over time, especially during the Trump administration, there was just this big focus on going after easy immigration cases. And that has exploded. The, the number of immigration cases has grown by 600% while corruption cases have declined by 40 to 50%. What about SLEDs? You addressed this a little bit earlier, but the state law enforcement division, can they kind of fill the gaps that those federal entities are, are leaving? And and if not, you know what what's kind of holding them back from being able to to do that and to investigate corruption more yes so sled is another another important uh anti-corruption fighter and they've done a lot of corruption cases as well but they just don't you, you think about sled they've got four four hundred some agents across the state uh, which sounds like a lot but that's actually not too much bigger than the Charleston Police Department and they have to do police shootings arsons and everything under the sun and these sort of corruption cases require specialized training, the accounting skills, and sp- specifically forensic ac- accounting skills, which means people who have the eye and the training to, to detect patterns of spending that are illegal. And they don't have any. They don't have a single forensic auditor. The, the State Ethics Commission, which is another watchdog, has one. One of the reasons, as you said, for why it's more difficult to uncover these issues of of corruption is losing community newspapers. What does that look like in South Carolina? How many of these local news sources have we lost in recent years? Yeah, Emily, that, that's a serious issue because it's it's these these newspapers that that send reporters out to those city and county council and town council meetings and watch what's happening and it's it's those little newspapers that are that are really keeping keeping people to account. And and what we're seeing, though, is we're seeing a lot of these newspapers who are supported in the, in the past by by advertisers. They are losing those advertisers to the internet. And and what, what's happening is that we, we have a lot of newspapers that are, they're still running and they're still doing great work, but they have, they have fewer reporters to pay attention. And so we, we talked to um, a lot of newspapers as part of this project, and we kept on hearing the same thing. You know, I, I I wish we had more people to do what you're doing. And so 
it's it's not just these news deserts. It's sort of what what we call ghost papers, papers that have been hollowed out by sometimes some of these, especially the chain papers, are have lost reporters because the chains, these national chains, have have cut staff to save money and boost profits. So you have this mix of national chains cutting papers, and then you have papers that are just drying up and disappearing. Right, and as you described, the process of going through documents like this and doing these investigations, it takes a lot of time. It's a painstaking process. So if you have two people putting out a paper every week by themselves, they just don't have that that time, even though, like you said, they're doing great work. Yeah. And then, so what happens as these, as these papers disappear, you know, these town councils and city councils, they're not being watched in the you know, most, I would say a lot of public servants, most public servants are probably in it for the right reasons, but it's the bad apples that, you know, really can, you know, create this, this sense of cynicism toward, toward government overall. And, and but without anybody watching, you're, you're just, you're simply not going to have government run as efficiently. And I'll, I'll give you one example. We just, after we published the series or the, the first installment, one of our reporters in Greenville was at a meeting, a council meeting, and they were talking about the usual things. And at the very end, they said, hmm, well, we're, I think it's time to plan our next retreat. And they said, well, we're not going to have it at the Grove Park Inn or another fancy place we talked about and uncovered. And everybody went, ha, 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 ha. And for me, that was just a telling moment because it showed, A, they're paying attention, and also the deterrence that investigative reporting can create statewide. Again, we were talking about how some of these small local papers want to do this, this kind of work but don't really have a lot of the resources. Can you talk about how the Post and Courier is working with, with some of those community papers to execute this project? We began this process last year where a, f- a few papers we were, were in constant contact with, including Kingstree and Chester, and, and we developed a nice relationship with, with some of these reporters because they would ask us about how, you know, how to file a proper FOIA for a particular agency, and we, you know, that's something we do a lot so we can help them. And so that kind of collaboration really was really gratifying, and, and in the end, we, we gained knowledge of their community because they cover the community in a way that we could never do because they're there. And they gained a little bit of sort of investigative knowledge and investigative reporting knowledge that really, I, I can tell in King Street that, that that affected several stories that, that we'll probably be talking about down the road. And Chester's got this great paper up there. They're not a news desert in any way. They, they're, they have aggressive, both the Chester and Lancaster have really aggressive papers and really good people there. But they, they, they're covering high school sports and everything, and they're up to their ears. Um, and so, but we, we can kind of help them in lots of ways, too. So as the Uncovered Project continues, is there a way that readers can get involved? There are several ways readers can get involved. One is... If you live in a small community, subscribe to your local paper. They, they need your help. They need your support. And same with us. Subscribe to the Post and Courier if you're, if you're able to. And we also have a, a, an investigative reporting fund that we've set up. This is a nonprofit that we hope will, in the future, grow to an, a, a large enough size that, that supports even deeper reporting than we're doing. So that's, that's another one. And then, you know, if you see something in the paper that bugs you, Call your your state lawmaker and say, yeah, we need to 
get more sled agents. We need to tighten up ethics laws. Make your voice heard. To celebrate Black History, The Post and Courier is presenting a series of podcasts and video interviews featuring 12 dynamic South Carolina leaders to know. We talk to people from all over the state about their efforts to advance social justice, celebrate black culture, address community needs, and create a better world. Our podcasts and videos will be released monthly through January 2022. To learn about South Carolina's pantheon of social justice warriors, go to postandcourier.com slash blackhistory. I'm Avery Wilkes, and I am a projects reporter at The Post and Courier. So, Avery, can you start by giving us some background on the South Carolina Ethics Commission? Who is it made up of? What's its function? Yeah, the Ethics Commission was created in 1975 with many of the same responsibilities it has now. Its job is to police mostly state and local elected officials in terms of ethics. It houses campaign disclosures for fundraising and spending for all types of campaign, state, state house, local, the governor's race. It houses ethics disclosures where state lawmakers and other types of officials have to explain their sources of income, any potential conflicts they might have in terms of are they paid by different government entities. But it also investigates complaints about potentially unethical conduct. There is a an actual commission that is appointed by the governor and the House and the Senate that hear such cases. The agency itself has investigators on hand who take in these complaints and try to determine whether they are valid. And there's a the very formal, very kind of secretive process after which a, a complaint is made The complaint is then sealed. Investigators look into it and determine whether there's probable cause to actually do a real investigation on it, at which point, once they do that, then they can either bring those charges to the commission for the commission to you know, make a decision. Oftentimes, it ends in a settlement where the official agrees that he or she did something wrong, sometimes inadvertently, and receives a fine or a fee, depending on how, how serious it is, sometimes both. So you talk about beefing up the South Carolina ethics laws. Can you tell us a little bit how they compare to other states? That's a good question. I actually don't know. We we haven't done an analysis of that. That's something that we should do. So I appreciate the question. What we can tell you is that there have been plenty of calls for, for a stronger ethics law in South Carolina, specifically because of the, the past scandals, you know, the issues where misconduct was brought to light. And then there's always that reaction of, we, we need stronger ethics laws. We need to find out if there's more of this. But then there's just this inertia in the state house against doing it. Cynics would tell you that that is because lawmakers don't want the Ethics Commission getting into their business. They're not certainly going to voluntarily beef up an agency that is policing their conduct. Other people would tell you, and I've had lawmakers tell me this, citizens don't beat down my door to talk about ethics. You know, when I get calls from citizens, it's because a stop sign is missing on a road or my road needs paving or my taxes are too high. But citizens are not beating down lawmakers doors maybe as much as they should be to say hey i don't think you're i don't think the law requires you to disclose enough i think you should disclose more about 
where you get your income, what type of conflicts of interest you might be involved in as a, as a lawmaker, as a county council member. What are some of the challenges that South Carolina's Ethics Commission runs into when they're trying to investigate these types of issues? I, you know, I think there's always been questions about what the law actually says. You know, the ethics law is in some cases gray about what is okay, what's not okay. There's a reason that so many officials proactively reach out to the Ethics Commission and to its counterparts, the House Ethics Committee and the Senate Ethics Committee and the Attorney General's Office to request advisory opinions and say, hey, is it okay if I do this? Is it okay if I do that? Oftentimes we've seen at the state house, the, the House and Senate ethics committees will just sign off on just about anything, even if someone else might read that and say, oh, that's clearly a conflict. So there's some gray areas there. I think um, some people would tell you that funding has been an issue. There's a lot of filings that they have to house every year. I believe we reported 22,000 different filings between campaign disclosures, statements of economic interest, and, and ethics complaints. And that's just a lot of paperwork that they're sort of buried under. They have to do training for officials. So officials know how to file that paperwork correctly, and they don't get themselves into trouble just by filing incorrectly or failing to file their documents. So there, there simply just aren't that many warm bodies looking for this, looking for this proactively. You know, they wait on complaints to come in from people, you know, that want to expose misconduct as opposed to, you know, kind of going out and doing these sort of audits. And maybe it shouldn't be the ethics commission that does that work. Maybe it should be some other kind of third party state auditing entity. There's, there's kind of a whole debate to be had that, that really hasn't been had about who should do that. Can you give us some specifics of the things that the Ethics Commission has penalized public officials for and what those public officials had to say about it? Yeah, there were a few things that, that we highlighted in that story and cases where officials had signed checks to their own businesses or had, had overseen the flow of public money going to their business, their wife's business, you know, their their son's business. The Ethics Commission did kind of clearly draw a line there and say, that's not okay. We highlighted the case of the Chapin town clerk who steered $2,000 worth of work to her son's landscaping business. We highlighted a commissioner of the Parker Fire and Sewer District in the upstate who was accused of giving insider bid information to a potential bidder who then hired his own company to do a different job. So a, a business associate of his that he gave information to in every case, every person I interviewed said that they disagreed with how harshly the Ethics Commission came down on them. In some cases, they fundamentally didn't understand why what they did was wrong. In other cases, they thought, you know, the Ethics Commission ignored evidence that was in their favor. The, the Parker commissioner, who was accused of bid rigging, for example, said that the information that he gave to the bidder had already been discussed in open session publicly. So it wasn't like he was giving insider information. In the case of the Chapin Town Hall clerk who paid her son $2,000 to move furniture and assemble shelves at the new town hall, she basically said he only made 15 bucks an hour. He'd been doing work for the city for years. And, you know, it, it's not like he got rich off of that. So there, it was interesting to, to hear kind of the different rationalizations and justifications that these local officials made for the actions that got them into trouble. One of the goals of this project is to make information about these kinds of violations more accessible to people. So first, can you just kind of explain the process that you had to go through to find these examples of these violations? And then also, what is the posting career doing to make this information more easy to access and to understand? 
So this was born out of wanting to look into these kinds of issues, but not knowing, not, not really knowing how. We dug around on the State Ethics Commission website where you can find, although it's frankly, it's a very bad website. And I've, I've said this multiple times. This is not really an opinion. Anyone who's ever used it will agree with you from candidates to officials to members of the public. It's not easy to search for things that are actually on the website. One thing that's not on the website are these case files. What you can find is a, a directory of names and dates of the violations and the, the investigations that happened. So you can find out that an investigation did happen, but you can't really find out that much more. When you look at the names, they don't tell you this person is an Allendale town councilman. This person is a, you know, uh, a Greenville County councilman. It, it, none of that is there. It's just a last name, first name, and then a, a series of numbers. That page is 40 pages long, single spaced. And we didn't know what to make of it. And I want to give the Ethics Commission credit because once we started requesting the case files for these names, they did a good job of getting them back to us. It was just that there were so many, I would say four out of five of these cases are just paperwork issues. So what we knew what we wanted to look at were substantial ethical misconduct issues, things that you would describe as corruption. So what we ended up doing was filing FOIA requests with the Ethics Commission for the last decade. And we said, we want all the cases of the last decade minus the insignificant failure to file paperwork cases. And the response we got was that's, that's way too much. Like that's going to take forever. That's going to be costly potentially. Is there any way you can narrow that quest? And again, at the time we're just thinking, we're just trying to figure out if anything is there, if there's anything useful to us here. So we said, no, just give us like the last year. So we got that year. We looked at them and it was interesting. There were cases that we thought were a good sampling of, of potential misconduct. So then we asked for the year before that and the year before that. And we kept filing these FOIA requests, kind of bite-sized chunks. Eventually, we got like 2010 through 2017 all at once. And the Ethics Commission, I, again, I want to give credit. They did a good job getting through all that. They, they did not complain about all the work we were making them do to provide those records. Those were the cases that we looked through. It was 2,000 pages of, you know, 100-something cases, some of which we included in the story in the database and some of which... We didn't because it didn't really fit the parameters we were looking at, you know, small town officials. So then it became a matter of, all right, what can we do to make this more accessible to the public? Because clearly it's not. I mean, it took us months and months of filing FOIAs and the Ethics Commission doing a lot of work to, to get that to us. So we made this database. This is just the first installment. There's more coming. So what can readers expect next? We're getting some good tips in now that people see the project and understand what we're doing. Gotten a lot of great tips that we're, we're going to try to run down. So we're excited about where this is going. Our team is continuing to dig into these issues. We've got several installments planned. We want to partner as much as we can with our, our local papers. Uh, we think they're a huge part of this because they know their communities inside and out in a way that I personally don't. You know, they're going to come to us with ideas. We're going to pitch them ideas. It, you know, we're, we're really, we're really glad that that's going to be a, a symbiotic relationship. So I, I think just keep, a, keep an eye out for it. We've got the landing page for the Uncovered series where we're going to be uploading everything. And I, I'm really excited to see what we're going to get into. All right, listeners, that's all for today. Do you have questions about today's show or ideas for what we should cover in a future episode? Write to us at understandsc at postandcourier.com or tweet us at understandsc. 
be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter so you can be one of the first to hear about new episodes. Are you looking for something else to listen to? Check out the 12 Black Leaders to Know in South Carolina podcast hosted by reporter Adam Parker. We will include a link in today's show notes. Thanks, and we'll be back next week. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier. Our music is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music on Spotify at Billy Fountain. We'd love to know what you think of this show. You can reach us at understandsc at postandcourier.com or on Twitter at understandsc. If you're a fan of this show, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcasts app. Keep up with the latest headlines at postandcourier.com. We'll see y'all next week.